0: Did you hear about the man who went to see his doctor with a sore throat? Of course, it doesn't really matter the ailment. As you well know, anytime you go to the doctor, they always ask you to undress. I just can't stand it, but they always do. Sore throat, whatever it is, they always ask you to undress. That's the first thing they do. And even though the man objected, the nurse persisted. He needed to disrobe down to his underwear. Well, the man finally reluctantly agreed. That's when he looked over and he saw another man sitting in the room, also sitting there in his underwear, holding a little wrapped package in his lap. The disgruntled patient, he said to the nurse, Man, I can't believe that they would make you take off your clothes for a sore throat. That's when the other guy kind of spoke up and he said, Yeah, stop your complaining. All I did was come to deliver a package. Well, for the next three Bible scans, we're going to visit the doctor. We're going to be visiting Dr. Luke. And he's going to ask us to strip away our prejudices and our false assumptions about Jesus. Luke was a Macedonian doctor and a friend of Paul. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. Many Bible scholars believe that Luke traveled with Paul in order to treat the infectious eye disease from which he suffered. Luke's gospel portrays Jesus from a doctor's point of view. It's full of medical terminology, details about his humanity that only a doctor would notice. Luke agreed that Jesus was God, but he also saw Jesus as the man of all men. In addition to being a doctor, Luke was also a historian. During the two years that Paul was in prison in Caesarea, Luke stayed there in Galilee and researched his gospel. He traveled throughout Galilee as well as Jerusalem, interviewing eyewitnesses, investigating reports. And in verses 3 and 4 here of chapter 1, Luke addresses his gospel. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of the things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Apparently, Theophilus was a new believer, and Luke wanted to write him an accurate and an orderly account of Jesus' ministry. Legend has it that Theophilus was an ugly man. Matter of fact, when he was born, the doctor said, this is the awfulest looking baby I've ever seen, Theophilus. And the name just stuck. Theophilus. (laughs) Seriously. His title here, Most Excellent, was used of Roman officials. And scholars believe that Luke and its sequel, the book of Acts, was probably written as a part of Paul's legal defense before Caesar. The longest gospel then may have been a legal brief. Luke chapter 1 begins with the angel Gabriel's visit to a priest named Zacharias. Here's the good news. Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were both good and godly people. But here's the bad news. Elizabeth was barren. And as far as they could tell, time had run out. Verse 7 says that they were both well advanced in years. A baby seemed an impossibility but not according to the angel Gabriel. He appears to Zacharias while he's serving his shift in the temple. He and Elizabeth will soon have a son named John. Verse 15 describes John, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Gabriel came to Zacharias with glorious news, but old Zach, he had his doubt. He answers Gabriel in verse 18, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Now, men, you need to take notice here. Notice he calls himself an old man. But he's much more polite in referring to his wife. He doesn't call her an old woman. Rather, he says, and my wife is well advanced in years. That's just a real nice way of saying it, isn't it? Although Zacharias avoided insulting his wife, he wasn't so successful with Gabriel. He answers, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you. In other words, hey, buddy, don't you know who you're talking to? Because of his unbelief, God seals Zacharias's lips. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she once wrote, the one without faith should be silent. I agree. Sadly, we have to listen to people today who spout their doubts. If you can't say something positive and encouraging, then you need to mute it. And God pushes the mute button on Zacharias' doubts. And it's amazing how faith grows when you're forced to stop talking and start listening. We're going to find that the very next words that fall from Zacharias' lips will be words of praise. It was a busy year that year for the angel Gabriel. Verse 27 tells us that six months later, he was dispatched by God to the town of Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. He comes again with news of another miraculous birth, this time a virgin birth. Mary will have a son named Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. Her son is described in verses 32 and 33. Here we're told of Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of His kingdom. There will be no end. Jesus will be the Son of God and the Hebrew Messiah. Remember, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. A betrothal was an intermediate stage. The couple was legally bound, but they were forbidden from having sexual relations. This is why Mary questions the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? The angel responds to Mary in three ways. He gives to her an explanation, followed by an illustration, and finally an exhortation. Verse 35 is Gabriel's explanation. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That's all we're told of the miracle. The Holy Spirit. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Guys, you try to figure this out. And you'll blow a fuse. God's miracles though aren't to be figured. They're to be believed. They're to be trusted in. When you can't figure, you need to have faith. He then brings up Elizabeth. Another miracle birth, which is the illustration. And then finally, verse 37 is Gabriel's exhortation. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Do you believe that? What a wonderful verse. What a wonderful promise. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Pastor Chuck says that the two most important verses in the Bible are John 5, verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. Along with Luke chapter 1, verse 37, with God, nothing will be impossible. We need to always keep those two verses in tandem. I can do nothing, but God can do all things. In and of myself, I am vulnerable, but in Christ Jesus, I become invincible. Today, we tend to gloss over the ramifications of an unmarried teenage girl turning up pregnant in ancient Israel. But Mary's predicament, we need to understand, was life-threatening. Fornication was a capital offense. Who would believe this young girl's story? That, to me, makes her response all the more incredible. We're told in verse 38, Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a picture of total surrender. Mary is wedded to the will of God. She is trusting Him with the outcome. My question to you tonight is, Can God? is God free to interrupt your plans? Is God free to step into your life and do something out of the ordinary, something for which you didn't expect? Are your wishes His will? When the angel departs, so does Mary. She visits her cousin Elizabeth. In verse 44, when Mary greets her cousin, the the baby that Elizabeth is carrying inside of her leaps in her womb. Even in utero, John the Baptist was testifying of Jesus. In verses 46 through 55, Mary erupts with praise and thanksgiving to God for the honor He's given her to bear the Messiah. In verse 46, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And through the centuries, Mary's song has been known as... As the Magnificate. Mary stayed three months with Elizabeth and then returned to Nazareth. When Elizabeth gives birth, everyone expects her and Zacharias to name their son after his father, Zacharias Jr. But remember the angel's instructions. His name was to be John. And so old Zach, who still can't talk, he asked for a writing tablet. And the moment he writes down his name is John, the Lord loosens his tongue and opens his lips, and Zacharias begins to praise the Lord. In verses 67 through 79, Zacharias prophesies of the Messiah and the role that his son John will play in Messiah's ministry. John will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. It's interesting that in verse 78... Jesus, in the prophecy, is called the day spring, or literally the sunrise. I love that name for Jesus. Hey, this world that we live in, it's shrouded in darkness. But Jesus is the first glimmer of morning light. A new day dawns for those who trust in Him, who put their faith in Him. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, God saws a 700-year-old dilemma. 700 years earlier, Micah, the Hebrew prophet, foretold that Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Now Mary is about to deliver her son, and she's 100 miles away from the God-appointed maternity ward. Trust me, a still small voice is not enough to prompt Joseph to pack up his waddling wife for a three-day donkey ride. It's going to take more than a steel small voice. It's going to take nothing less than a royal edict. And that's exactly what God supplies. The Caesar in Rome, who thinks he's inflating his ego, who is trying to demonstrate the vastness of his empire, he orders a census. And everyone is required to go back to their hometown. Isn't it interesting? The Caesar thinks he's so mighty. He thinks he's the ruler of the world. And he's going to show you the vastness of his empire by this census. But in reality, he's just a puppet on the string. The shots are being called in heaven, not Rome. You remember that. The shots are still being called in heaven, not Washington or Moscow. His order causes Joseph and Mary to head to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. Of course, when they arrive... There's no one there to roll out the red carpet. Instead, doors begin to slam in the couple's face. Jesus is born in a barn because there was no room for Him at the Oconnell Lodge. Imagine, imagine, there is no room for the Son of God. It reminds me of the Jewish lady who was trying to get a hotel room in an extremely anti-Semitic area of New England. The sign said vacancy, but she kept going in and getting turned down. Finally, one clerk was honest with her. He said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but we don't rent to Jews here. Well, Mrs. Rosenberg, she answered, but I'm a Christian. I've converted to Christianity. He didn't believe her, but he agreed to test her to see if it was true. He said, okay, why then do you celebrate Christmas? She said, well, it's Jesus' birthday. Huh. Well, where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. Huh. Well, anybody know that? Where did they lay him? In a manger. Why did they lay him in a manger? Well, by this time, Mrs. Rosenberg was getting a little on edge, and so finally she looked him square in the eye and she shouted, "Because a jerk like you wouldn't give a Jewish lady a room for the night." Now I want to ask you, are you being a jerk or is there room in your heart and in your home for Jesus Christ? Guys, notice the particular details of the birth of Jesus. Our Lord had peasants for parents. He was born in a stable. No doctors, no midwives oversaw His birth. His first crib was a feeding trough. The announcement of his birth came not to royal dignitaries, but to lowly, despised, grungy shepherds. Hey, when the shepherds came to town, the sheriff placed the deputies on high alert. Shepherds were always shady characters. Can you imagine a more ironic way to stage the most important event in the history of mankind? It was as if God was defying every human convention. Hey, the King of Heaven came to this earth not in the midst of worldly glitter and glamour. Jesus came humbly and He lived the very same way that He came. Guys, where do we, His servants, get off expecting special treatment, expecting creature comforts for serving Jesus when our Lord Jesus Himself took such a low road? Verse 19 tells us that Mary pondered the events surrounding Jesus' birth, pondered them in her heart. Verse 20 says, The shepherds went away praising God. Hey, I like that combination. Ponder and praise. Think and thank. Store and adore. That's a great formula to practice in our times alone with God. Ponder and praise. When Jesus was eight days old, He was taken to the temple to be circumcised. Forty days after His birth, Joseph brought his son again to the temple, this time to be dedicated to God. A lamb was the supposed sacrifice, but the law allowed for peasants to substitute pheasants. And Joseph sacrificed the turtle doves, the provision for a poor man. While visiting the temple, two people approached Jesus, Simeon and Anna. God assured the old man Simeon that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah. And in chapter 2, verse 29, when he sees Jesus, he takes the baby in his arms and he says... Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. a light like to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Verse 33 says that Joseph and Mary stood back and they marveled. That is, until Simeon said this to them, Behold. This child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against you. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Four words sum up Simeon's prophecy. Pivotal, persecuted, pierce, and peeled. You see, Jesus is the pivotal point for every human's destiny. It all hinges on what you believe about Jesus Christ. Your eternal destiny hinges on what you believe about Jesus Christ. Jesus will be persecuted by those who don't recognize Him. His suffering will pierce the soul of His own mother. And He'll peel back the facade of every man and woman and reveal what's truly in our hearts. Anna was a woman who devoted her life to prayer. She was well over a hundred years old when she found Jesus in the temple. And since her husband died 84 years earlier, she had served God in the temple night and day. She too spotted the baby Jesus, was revealed to her His divine origins, and she praised God and gave thanks. Verse 39 tells us that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. I'm sure that in Luke's research, He tracked down Mary personally. And spoke to her about Jesus' childhood. About His early birth and His early years growing up. And I can picture Mary pulling out her baby book and telling Luke story after story after story. But for some reason, the good doctor decides to sum up all that information with a simple statement. He says in verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus grew up in four ways. He grew up intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. We too need to grow up in those four ways. We too need to grow in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and men. But you know, as parents, this is also a good formula for our kids. We want our kids to grow up intellectually Physically, spiritually, and socially. We need to help them develop their brains, but also their muscles, certainly their spirits, and even their relational skills with other people. Luke does record, though, one incident from Jesus' childhood. He was 12 years old when the family had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When everyone left to head home, they discovered that Jesus wasn't among the kids there in the caravan. Joseph and Mary realized they had left their son behind and so they rushed back to Jerusalem only to find Jesus there in the temple actually teaching the Jewish teachers. They rebuked Jesus for not telling them where he was, making them worry. You can hear the typical parental you know, things coming out of their mouth. But Jesus answers in verse 49, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Even then, he knew who he was and what he had come to do. They should have known that Jesus would be taking care of divine business. Verse 50, though, must have sailed right over their heads. Guys, here's the question, though, for us. Whose business are we about? Whose business are we embroiled in? Our own business or in the work of God? In Luke chapter 3, John comes on the scene and he jolts the Jews. The word of God came to John and John took it to the people. Repent, turn from your sin, prepare for the Savior. John's message was a good example of some bare knuckled preaching. John graduated from Wilderness University, from the Seminary of Seclusion. He wasn't schooled by the status quo, but by God Himself. He spoke for God and He confronted the establishment of His day. Talk about ruffling a few feathers. How about calling a delegation of your denominational leaders a brood of vipers? But understand, when we get so tied to the establishment that we're afraid to address its sins, something's wrong. You can be sure when you get to that place that you're no longer for God. Actually, you're working against God. John's main message is told to us here in verse 8 of chapter 3. True repentance will bear fruit. In other words, it'll be evidenced not just by your words, but by your actions and your changed attitudes. John practices what I call applied repentance. He tells three groups of people how repentance should look in their lives. What they'll do if they're truly repentant. He tells the people, hey, if you're repentant toward God, you'll show compassion and be kind toward people who are less fortunate. He tells the tax collectors, hey, a repentant attitude produces fair play. You won't collect a cent more than you're required to collect. And he tells the soldiers, if you're truly repentant, you won't be out intimidating others or accusing people falsely. You'll be fair and good toward people. John made it clear that he was not the Messiah. He says to the crowd in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, I indeed baptized you with water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. You see, John's baptism spoke of repentance. He stirred up in his followers the desire to change, but you see, he was unable to affect that change. Jesus, though, baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Jesus not only gives us the desire to change, but He gives us the power to change. That's the difference. You know, in the early days of NASA, the challenge of space travel was generating an upward explosion strong enough to break the downward pull of Earth's gravity. This is our challenge as believers. How do you break the downward pull of sin? There's only one way. We need the upward explosion of the Holy Spirit. We need to ask Jesus to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Speaking of baptism, years ago, a Baptist church in New Orleans caught fire. The fire department arrived early and they doused all of the flames. The next day, though, the fire inspector, who happened to be a Roman Catholic, he was surveying the scene when the man tripped and fell into the baptismal pool. Well, you see, the baptismal pool had been filled with water from the night before when they were fighting the fire. When the inspector exited the building, he asked someone standing by, who does this church belong to? The guy said, it belongs to the Baptist. And the fireman shook his head and he said, well, I don't know much about those people, but I guess I'm one of them now. Baptism is a way to identify yourself with Jesus. When we're baptized, we're saying to the world that we belong to Him. Likewise, when Jesus was baptized, He was identifying Himself with us. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He had never sinned. But He chose to be baptized to show that He wanted to be one with His people. Notice, too, what happens when Jesus is baptized. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Here's a beautiful picture of the triune nature of God. God is one God, but He exists in three distinct persons. Here the Son stands in the water while the Father pronounces His blessing from heaven and the Holy Spirit descends upon Him in the form of a dove to empower Him. Luke chapter 3 closes with another genealogy of Jesus. Remember, Matthew's genealogy traced Jesus' lineage back through his foster father, Joseph. Luke's genealogy is his lineage through his birth mother, Mary. At his baptism, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. But don't assume that being filled with the Holy Spirit lifts you above the possibility of temptation. Not so. We're told here that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God Himself ordered this showdown. Luke chapter 4 underscores the fact that God uses temptation as a part of the maturing process in our lives. We need to forget about escaping temptation. We need to learn how to overcome it. Satan's temptation was threefold. Feel great. Oh, you're hungry. I know it. Just turn these stones into bread. Satisfy your appetite. Hey, hey, be great. Hey, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. You can rule over this whole world. Look great. Oh, just jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Let some angels catch you. Everybody will see it. Wow, you'll look good. And Satan offers us the same temptation. Different forms, but the same thing. Oh, here's how you can... Feel great. Oh, here's how you can be great. No, here's how you can look great. Jesus won this battle with the devil by applying God's Word. He knew that true obedience to God, that was the way to feel great and be great and look great. Not the devil's way. It is always the Word of God that exposes Satan's lies. We need to learn the Word and protect ourselves. When Jesus began his ministry, he quickly became the source of public speculation. People were asking, who is this man? Man, he's working miracles. What what is this man all about? Is he a rabbi? Is he some magician? Is he a prophet sent from God? Could he be the Messiah? He answers their questions in Nazareth. It was a Sabbath day. And as was his custom, he usually came to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, so the people were expecting him. And the synagogue that day was packed. People had come from all over, hoping that Jesus would address the assembly and clarify His intentions. Guys, it is important for us too to understand the intentions of Jesus. How can we give over to Him something as important as our very lives unless we know what He's going to do with them when He gets them? What are His intentions? It's vitally important that we know. Jesus reads them, Isaiah chapter 61. It was a prophecy of the Messiah's ministry. And in verses 18 and 19, Jesus reveals His intentions both then and now. Here is what He wants to do in your life. He still comes to meet needs, to heal broken hearts, to break oppressive habits, to open blind eyes, and to soothe emotional bruises. You can trust Jesus with your life. Give your life to Jesus. You won't be disappointed. These are the things he intends to do. You know, you could hear a pin drop as Jesus rolled back up that scroll and handed it back to the leader of the synagogue. Everyone knew that that passage that Jesus had just read referred to the Messiah. That's when Jesus adds in verse 21, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, hey, I am he who Isaiah wrote about. There was no doubt about it. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. Sadly, the crowd in Nazareth refused to believe in him. Their problem was pride. Someone spoke up from the back of the room. Is this not Joseph's son? How can he be special? He's one of us. Jesus told them no prophet is accepted in his own country. And he gave them two Old Testament examples of how pride got in the way of the miracles that God wanted to work for his people. Guys, are we too proud? who admit that we need Jesus' help. We need to humble ourselves and we need to show Jesus where it hurts. He wants to heal our broken hearts. The people of Nazareth try to push Jesus over the cliff outside the synagogue. And Jesus works another miracle and passes through the angry crowd untouched. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus casts out a demon. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. Then He repeats the miracles for many more people. In verse 42, the people with Jesus want Him to stay longer with them. They want Him to stay in their town. But He tells them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. Understand, Jesus knew the musts that God had placed in His life. And He refused to let other people distract Him from those musts with their demands. Jesus refused to be distracted. He refused to be diverted from the purpose for which He had been sent. You know, I have found that this is one of the biggest challenges in ministry. People always want you to take their crisis and make it your emergency. Campus Crusade for Christ publishes a booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. The first law in the booklet states, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But here's a little takeoff on that law number one. God loves you and people have a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) When the demands of people conflict with the commands of God, we need to refocus on the musts that God has set for our lives. What are the musts in your life? There are a lot of extracurriculars, but what are the musts? that God has called you to. Don't be distracted from them. Love people, certainly. Serve other people, but don't be enslaved by their demands. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus finishes His teaching and He takes His disciples fishing. Now, I've got to admit, I'm not much of a fisherman, but I would have loved to have gone fishing with Jesus. Speaking of fishing, did you hear about the two guys that were out fishing on a Sunday morning? After a couple of hours without a bite, one of the guys says to his buddy, he says, Man, he says, I'm starting to feel guilty that I should have gone to church this morning. His his buddy sort of responds, Yeah, you know, I I feel that way too, but I couldn't have gone to church anyway. My wife is at home sick. (laughs) Well, when Jesus told Peter to let down his nets, Peter complained. He had fished that spot all night without a nibble. What makes any difference now? In verse 5, Peter though gives in. He says, nevertheless, Lord, at your word, I will let down the net. And to his surprise, the nets came up full of fish. Peter caught a school and he went to school. Guys, when it comes to fishing for men, we can toil all night without a nibble. We can waste time and burn out our energy in the process, or we can listen to Jesus and let Him direct where we should throw our nets. Two more miracles show Jesus' willingness to heal and His power to forgive. Jesus heals a leper and says to the lame man, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Verse 25 says, He departed to his own house, glorifying God. In between those two miracles, it said of Jesus in verse 16, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Notice how as the public attention grew, Jesus was careful to keep his attention on God. If you're a busy person, there's some important lessons for you here tonight. Jesus sought out quiet places even as his schedule intensified, even as the demands grew, he went and spent time with God. Quiet places and private prayers became his regular hangouts. You have regular times when you hang out with God. Matthew was the prototype of the person that Jesus specialized in reaching. He was a tax collector. He was hated by the people, but he was loved by Jesus. You see, Jesus makes disciples out of self-assessed sinners not out of self-obsessed saints. Did you hear about the Hindu, the Jew, and the IRS agent? You see, they were spending the night out in the farm. And in the house, there were only two beds. And so the Hindu volunteered to go out and sleep in the barn. But when he went out, he saw a cow in the barn. And he came back and he said, Look, he said, There's a cow out there. I can't sleep with a cow. It's against my religion. Well, next, the Jew volunteered. He said, Okay, I'll go out and sleep in the barn. But he comes back shortly thereafter and he says, look, I can't sleep in the barn either. There's a pig out in the barn and that's against my religion. A little while later, there was a knock at the door. They opened the door and there stood the pig and the cow. Levi was a despised tax collector and yet Jesus loved him and wanted to add him to his family. Judaism was an old wineskin skin. It had become a brittle, unbending religious structure that contained the status quo, but certainly not the Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit is like a fresh wine, always moving and expanding. To this very day, tired, traditional church blueprints are the arch enemy of the work of the Holy Spirit. We want the Spirit to live in our churches. We need to value flexibility over formality. Remember the last words of a dead church. We've always done it this way. (laughs) <laughs> hypocrites love rules not god's rules mind you but their own rules the fourth commandment gave broad general instructions to observe the sabbath day as a day of rest and worship you were not supposed to work on the sabbath but the pharisees felt compelled to define what constituted work they said that you could wear your you could not wear your dentures on the sabbath for in doing so you would be carrying a load and therefore working. They said that you could spit on the Sabbath day as long as you did not scuff your spit with your heel of your shoe or you would be cultivating and watering the soil, therefore working. It's been said of the American legal system, we have 35 million laws trying to enforce Ten Commandments. That's also a good description of Judaism. In Luke 6, Jesus refuses to adhere to the Jewish brand of Sabbath worship. The Jews went so far as to believe that healing on the Sabbath constituted work and thus was a sin. And Jesus tells them in verse 9, I will ask you one thing, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? In other words, what's more important? Keeping silly rules that make you feel self-righteous are doing good and saving lives. The answer was obvious. Jesus told the man with the crippled hand, stretch out your hand. And the old boy did. Chapter 6, verse 11 says of the legalistic Jews, they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Guys, they could tell everybody what to do on the Sabbath but God. (laughs) They couldn't tell Him what to do on the Sabbath day. They got mad because God wouldn't keep their commands. Be careful. There's still a few people like that running around. The last half of chapter 6 is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually a different sermon Given on a different occasion, verse 17 says that Jesus stood on a level place when He gave this sermon. That's why it's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. But there is nothing plain about the life it depicts. Jesus describes an attractive, a winsome, a genuine brand of spirituality. Righteousness is an attitude, not an achievement. It involves being, not just doing. The blessings and woes of the chapter all deal with character. Real righteousness is loving those who don't love you. Forgiving instead of condemning. It's not merely doing good deeds, but it's having a good heart. This brand of spirituality is not a deed you wear as sort of a merit badge. It's a way of life that's born in the heart. In essence, he's saying it takes the Holy Spirit to be truly spiritual. And don't forget Jesus' command in verse 37. Judge not and you shall not be judged. Once a man was trying to get out of jury duty. Ever been there? Well, he approached the judge and he pointed out at the defendant and he said, Hey, judge, I know that man's guilty. He just looks like a crook. I I walked past him a few minutes ago. He smells like a crook. Everything about him just says crook to me. That There is no way that that this man... There's no way that I can be unbiased in this this trial. I know that that man is a crook. That's when the judge sort of shrugged and said, Ah, sit down. That's not the defendant. That's the district attorney. Hey, we make huge mistakes when we make superficial judgments. Get the two by four out of your own eye before you try to remove the toothpick from your brother's eye. Let me close with a verse that appears only in the book of Luke. Jesus says to us in verse 38, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, you determine the portion of your blessing by the proportion of your gift. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the word of God and the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. And we pray, Lord, that we would take heed to the promptings of your spirit tonight. And as you've touched us and as you've revealed to us things that we've needed to to glean, things we need to apply, Lord, I pray you'll give us soft hearts. Not hard hearts that we can be obedient to Your Word. We love You. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.